Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to the Rackman Review. I'm Helen Worrell, Defense and Security Editor at the Financial Times, filling in for Gideon Rackman, who is away on leave. In this week's podcast, we're looking at cyber espionage, which has been in the headlines recently because the US has been hit by two serious hacking campaigns. My guest is Dmitry Alperovich, an expert in cybersecurity and state-backed cyber attacks, who gave evidence last month to the US House Committee on Homeland Security, which is investigating the recent hacks. He has set up a not-for-profit organization focused on national security, foreign policy, and cyber defense. So, what is cyber espionage, and how should governments respond when they are hacked? There's nothing new about the art of spying. It dates back for centuries. But one of the biggest problems for modern intelligence agencies is that espionage has progressed beyond intercepting letters and stealing military blueprints to spying which is conducted online. Countries in the West, such as the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, are increasingly under threat from cyber campaigns carried out by their main adversaries, Russia, China, Iran and North Korea. In the past, we've heard a lot about cyber attacks which have a destructive effect, such as when North Korean hackers compromised Sony Pictures in 2014. Today, the U.S. government pointed the finger of blame directly at North Korea for the devastating cyber attack against Sony Pictures. They caused a lot of damage. And we will respond. But the most recent hacks, which rocked the U.S., were aimed at finding information rather than causing damage. Attacks like these usually focus on stealing sensitive intelligence from within government or accessing intellectual property from Western companies. The first hack, discovered in December, has been attributed to Russia, although the Kremlin denies any involvement. It allegedly hijacked trusted SolarWinds software and gained access to computers in the US Commerce and Treasury Departments. This has prompted alarmist responses from several U.S. senators, including Dick Durbin. And let's let's put it on the line here. We need an honest reset in terms of relationships between the United States and Russia. We can't be buddies with Vladimir Putin and, and, and have him at the same time making this kind of a cyber attack on America. This is virtually a declaration of war by Russia on the United States, and we should take that seriously. The other espionage campaign discovered earlier this month targeted individuals at US think tanks and NGOs through a backdoor created in Microsoft software. We're seeing an allegation of a hostile nation state hitting American business and government uh, entities. Uh, And there's enormous frustration, I can tell you, on the business and government side. The White House has not yet said who was behind the hack, but Microsoft has blamed China. At least 30,000 US companies have been hit so far, but the attack is ongoing, so it could be many more. With President Joe Biden under pressure to respond to these spying campaigns, the question is, even if they cause embarrassment and disruption, is it right to retaliate? I started our conversation by asking Dmitry Alperovich to describe what had actually happened in the SolarWinds and Microsoft hacks. 
both of these attacks are actually quite different and the nature of our response needs to reflect that as well. So in the case of SolarWinds, this was a so-called supply chain attack where the SVR, the Civilian Russian Intelligence Service that is a successor to the KGB, decided to target a variety of different software companies, including SolarWinds, that they knew were being used by their ultimate targets, which were U.S. government agencies, such as the Department of Treasury, Justice Department, and other sensitive government networks that they really wanted to get into. So by compromising organizations like SolarWinds and putting in back doors or stealing information that would then be used to target those ultimate victims, they were able to orchestrate a very stealthy attack that would get them into their ultimate targets and allow them to remain in those targets for many, many months, and I'm sure they were hoping even years, in order to continuously steal valuable resources. In a piece that you wrote recently, you've described the SolarWinds hack as the cyber equivalent of the Russian Illegals program, which was a sort of decades-long sleeper cell initiative started in the 1930s to infiltrate Russian spies into the heart of European and US society. I was quite surprised to read this because obviously we don't think of cyber operations being similar to these traditional spy tradecraft operations. Can you tell us why you made this comparison? At the end of the day, one, they are being perpetrated by the the same operators. So SVR, of course, is the primary foreign intelligence service in Russia. They are the ones that are running most of these illegals. If anyone's watched in, in the U.S., the Americans show that it's modeled on the real case of a dozen or so illegals that were caught in 2010. That is the type of operation that the Russians have perfected running. And the reason they like to do them is because it gives them long-term stealth access to valuable intelligence. They can put someone in under a fake identity into a country, have them build up their reputation and their persona over years and decades and get close to people in power so that they can collect information. And what they're trying to do in cyber with these supply chain hacks is exactly the same thing. They're trying to figure out how do we get into these networks and get into them in a way that would be very, very difficult for the victim to detect and ultimately remain in there collecting intelligence for months, potentially years, maybe even longer. And that is why I think we need to start thinking about this as a new normal. This is not a one-off where we've addressed the SolarWinds hack and other companies that have been compromised and we can move on. I believe that this is the way that the Russians will start doing business in cyber, trying to replicate what they've done so successfully in the physical world for many decades. Right. And moving on to the Microsoft hack, which the company itself has attributed to China, but we should make clear that the US administration has not attributed to China at the moment. That's obviously a very different style of operation. Yeah, the exchange campaign started out as an espionage campaign. So the Chinese, in this particular case, figured out that there were a number of really devastating vulnerabilities in the Microsoft Exchange software that's widely used to operate email servers. And they were able to gain access to those email servers and steal information and then uh, pivot from those servers to get into other parts of the network. So initially, around um, January timeframe, they were using these vulnerabilities to target their traditional espionage priorities, think tanks, dissidents, and the like. But then something interesting happened. So around late February, somehow, we still don't know how, the Chinese got word that Microsoft was now aware of the exploitation of these vulnerabilities and was going to issue a patch 
which would essentially burn their opportunity to compromise future targets. And what they did is something that is quite unprecedented, certainly for them. They decided to literally scan virtually the entire internet to identify any vulnerable exchange servers and compromise them all, whether they were interesting targets or not, whether they were government networks or school districts and small businesses and other types of organizations that the Chinese would have no real interest in getting into. But what they wanted to do is cast a wide net and then cherry pick the targets that they were very interested in. It's really a pillage everything model, as one cybersecurity expert put it, because the idea that you would literally compromise virtually every exchange server that is vulnerable and leave it vulnerable so that even if they apply a patch, the access that the Chinese put in is still there. It could potentially be leveraged by other threat actors. That's what makes it so different. I liken the Russian operations to you know, a scalpel going in and doing very precise surgery, whereas the Chinese are essentially amputating a full limb in a very untargeted, reckless, and extremely dangerous manner. But as you say, even if one of them is a, a very focused scalpel operation and the other is more of a sort of smash and grab, they're both obviously extremely serious in different ways. And as a result, there have been lots of calls for the US to take very sort of strong retaliatory action. I'm interested in whether or not you think that would be justified because surely countries within the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, including the US and the UK, are doing exactly the same things back to their adversaries. Yeah, I don't believe that it's justified or even productive to retaliate against Russia for the SolarWinds hacks because, as you said, the US intelligence community and our allied partners are doing those types of operations They have been doing them for many decades. But more importantly, one of the things that we don't fully give the Russians credit for in a way is that one of the things that they did do by compromising SolarWinds, they, they put in this back door into their code that was then distributed to over 18,000 SolarWinds customers, including their ultimate targets. But what they decided to do is actually send a kill switch to 99% of those potential victims saying, we're not interested in your network, we're only focused on government espionage, and we're not only going to prevent anyone else from abusing this access, unlike what the Chinese had done, we're going to shut down our own access into those networks permanently. And that is a very responsible act. Now, I don't actually think that they did it out of the goodness of their heart. I think they were trying to minimize their footprint inside target networks so that they could run the stealthy operations for a long, long period of time without being detected. But nevertheless, this is the type of thing that we would want foreign intelligence services to do, to be very targeted, very precise, minimize collateral damage to anyone else. And by hitting them disproportionately for that operation, we're actually incentivizing the wrong sort of behavior. What we don't want to do is have the Russians look at this and say, we were responsible this time around. We got hammered with sanctions and other retaliatory measures. And next time around, we're not going to hold back, right? That would be highly counterproductive and not what we want to do from a norms perspective. Now, the Chinese one, because of its recklessness, I think needs to be responded to very forcefully. And when you say very forcefully, what does that look like? So there's a variety of things that you can do. I'm not a fan of cyber on cyber retaliation. We should think about ways that we can inflict pain on the offending actor here and then pick the right tool to use to send that message. It might be cyber, but most of the time it's actually not. So the things that the Chinese care a lot about, of course, is their economy 
and using economic means to send a message can be very powerful. One of the things that the U.S. government has done over the last several years is use the so-called entities list that the Commerce Department publishes, where if you put a company on it, the Chinese company, you basically prevent anyone from exporting any technologies to them. So you really shut them off from Western supply chains. And that can be extraordinarily powerful if you start targeting some titans of industry in China with this type of retaliation. That would certainly get their attention really fast. So those are the types of things that you can consider to send a message. It doesn't necessarily need to be in cyber. My understanding is that Barack Obama actually already agreed a deal with Xi Jinping in 2015 to stop China conducting commercial cyber espionage against the US by threatening just the sort of economic sanctions against key Chinese companies that you're talking about now. Is there any evidence at all that that deal has had any long-lasting effect? It has not had a long-lasting effect. You're absolutely right. In in, uh, the fall of 2015, there was a leak in the press that the U.S. was considering sanctions against Chinese companies. That got Xi Jinping's attention, and he sent over a delegation to negotiate a deal, out of which ultimately came a statement, a joint statement, that both countries would not engage in commercial espionage. Of course, the U.S. already by policy did not do so, but it was important to get the Chinese on the record saying so. And for about 12 to 15 months, we saw a dramatic decline in that type of activity against Western companies, but then it resumed. And it's not quite clear why it declined or why it resumed. There could have been a variety of different factors contributing to it, including some domestic things that were taking place at the time in China with regards to an anti-corruption campaign that they had launched and uh, a reorganization of their military that probably affected their ability to execute those types of operations. But nevertheless, the deal did not last. And um, now we are seeing just massive amounts of cyber activity from China targeting U.S. industry and government networks. Given what you say about the volume of this type of espionage, I'm interested in whether or not you think that Western governments and multinational bodies like NATO are still too focused on military force rather than trying to address this cyber threat. What do you think? Well, NATO is, is of course, a military alliance. So their primary responsibility is how to protect the viability of the alliance and their military capabilities. So I don't necessarily fault them for focusing on military means, but there's no question that war in the 21st century is not just conducted by militaries, and militaries are not the only targets of hostile actions. And unfortunately, these days, cyber is a fifth domain of warfare, and um, the majority of the people connected to the internet are not parts of militaries and are just living their lives and, and conducting business, and they will suffer collateral damage as a result of any conflict between nation states in this domain. That is the reality I think we have to confront and acknowledge, unfortunately the world is is much less peaceful than it used to be. Do you think the people who are making big policy decisions in governments around the world about future security and defense actually understand enough about the nature of cyber attacks? I realize this is a very general question, but surely in order to make the right decisions about this sort of threat, you need to really understand it. I think that is an issue that we face in governments really around the world, where the lack of technical understanding, the lack of understanding of the nuance between the different cyber attacks across policymakers is a big problem. One example of that was just a few months ago when we initially learned about the SolarWinds hack, 
you had a number of senators saying that this was, you know, a declaration of war or a new cyber Pearl Harbor or 9-11. And those analogies are just not helpful. That was an espionage campaign, a very targeted one at that. It was certainly not war. It was not a new 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. But on the other hand, we are seeing very, very capable leaders being put into significant positions of power that do understand cyber. And the Biden administration, I think, made a great thing by putting an incredibly capable leader, Ann Neuberger, who's a longtime professional from the National Security Agency, into a new position that they had created within the White House of a deputy national security advisor for cyber, an unprecedentedly powerful role within the White House focused on cyber issues. So we are seeing that issue become more and more embedded within the corridors of power, but there's still way more work to do to get others to understand both the importance of the issue as well as the nuance of the different attacks. One of the things I think is most interesting about the most recent hacks that we've seen in the US is that this has sort of reignited discussions about how you hit back in cyberspace, you know, these so-called offensive cyber capabilities that countries have. And in my experience, cybersecurity officials are quite happy to talk about what they do in defense terms, but they're very wary of talking about any of their attack capabilities, and these are highly classified. Do you think that countries like the US and the UK should be more open about what they're doing in this area? There's no question. And actually, the only operation that has been officially acknowledged by the US government in cyberspace was an operation against Islamic State that they did jointly with the UK. They've never acknowledged publicly any operation against Russia. Everything that we know about those types of activities have come out of press leaks. So I do think it is a ridiculous position for US government to take where the adversary, Vladimir Putin in this particular case, knows what was being done to him and to networks in Russia, but the American people are kept in the dark. I don't know how the U.S. government can possibly justify that. It makes no sense. And I do think that we need to get rid of some of the overclassification that is just nonsensical in this space. You know, we should not talk about the specifics in terms of how we are executing specific operations. But in terms of high level, this is the type of stuff that we are doing. These are the types of operations that are being conducted. I think we need to have a a policy debate about it, and we need to get those operations out of the shadows. Why should they come out of the shadows? We need a debate in this country about what is appropriate. We need to have a discussion of whether enough has been done. Maybe there's opportunities for us to accelerate some of those activities in order to enforce red lines. Maybe too much has been done and we're generating sort of an escalatory conflict as a result of this tit for tat. Because all of this has been done in the covert space, because it's been done with highly classified operations, That debate is not being had, and that really is impacting negatively our national security. One of the things that people often say when they talk about cyber operations is they discuss this as a grey zone between peace and war. You know, cyber operations are usually beneath the threshold of conflict. But last year, a patient in Germany died during a cyber attack on a hospital, and there still seems to be some controversy over whether her death was a direct result of that intrusion. And there was also an attack last month on a water treatment plant in Florida where a hacker nearly succeeded in actually increasing the quantities of a chemical which would have poisoned the water supply. Just to be clear, neither of these were state-based attacks that we know of, but Are we actually close to witnessing a cyber attack 
which you think could potentially come out of the grey zone into something more like conflict? I don't think so. There are much easier ways to kill people and destroy physical infrastructure than cyber. So if that is your primary objective, cyber would be the last thing that you would pull out of your toolkit to try to destroy something, unless you're trying to be covert and make it hard to attribute, although these days most operations do get attributed very, very quickly. But what gives us so much heartburn around cyber is that it is painful enough when these attacks are being conducted that you can't ignore it, but at the same time, it doesn't rise to that threshold where you're going to retaliate or get retaliate, even raise that above other issues that you may have with a particular country, right? So when it comes to Russia, for example, are the cyber attacks we're seeing from Russia more important than their use of chemical weapons or invasion of eastern Ukraine or takeover of Crimea or any number of things that we have as a challenge in our overall bilateral relationship? Same with China, same with Iran, same with North Korea. And the problem that we've had is that cyber has never risen to the top of the agenda with any of these countries, in some ways because the other issues have been more important, and uh, we've been letting them slide and continue to execute damaging attacks against us because we have not found a way to respond adequately in a way that really um, raises the cost. So I think, will we see attacks that cause loss of life? Absolutely. Will they be part of future conflict? No doubt. Will we see, quote unquote, cyber war? where the only thing that's taking place in, in a conflict between nation states is, is cyber weapons being lobbed against each other? I don't think so. I think that cyber will play an element of future warfare, but it will not be the main element. I realize that a lot of discussions about cyber tend to be quite negative. I mean, lots of discussions of risk. We've heard a lot over the past year that the COVID pandemic has potentially weakened all of our vulnerabilities to cyber attacks. But one of the things I wanted to ask you is whether or not you think there's any cause for optimism. As all of our lives migrate more and more online, we become more dependent on the internet of things. Obviously, that creates potential weaknesses that hackers can exploit. But do you think, as a population, people are becoming more aware of the need to be careful and secure in what they do online? Do you think things are actually potentially going to get better? Well, I think there are a few things that we can be optimistic about. One is that as a species, we're extremely resilient. So despite escalating attacks in cyberspace, we've learned to live with them. They're painful, no doubt, but we have not only not pulled back from using the internet, we've embraced it more and more and are connecting more and more things to it, despite of the escalating threats. So people and companies and governments seem to have made the decision that the reward is worth the risk and um, we should continue to embrace the benefits despite the downsides. Um, and I think I broadly agree with that view as well. The challenge that we face is how do we take what we know about how to secure our networks, which we actually know a lot about. Some of the best companies out there are doing extremely well defending themselves against even the most sophisticated attacks. But there's a huge swath of what I call cyber have-nots, many smaller organizations, small businesses, schools, hospitals that don't have the resources, don't have the talent, don't have the capability to really defend themselves, and how do we get them up to where they need to be in order to make sure that our society is more resilient against the threat is probably the biggest challenge that we face in this domain and one that we have not been able to solve. That was Dmitry Alperovich, ending this edition of the Rackman Review. If you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate it if you could tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
You can find the Rackman Review in all the usual podcast apps. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 